The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. The rest of us are going to be in 1 Corinthians 16, so if you look on your bulletin, the Sermon of the Day, uh, I titled it Stewardship and Hospitality. Today we're emphasizing stewardship. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 12, we'll probably get through maybe 1 through 4 today because that topic is so important and this passage is so rich. Uh, stewardship has to do with taking care of things faithfully, of things entrusted to you that actually don't belong to you. You don't own them, but the owner has entrusted things to you to invest wisely, to wisely to use wisely, and then you have to give an accounting for it at some point to the one who gave that to you. That's what stewardship means. Usually when we hear the word stewardship, many people think just of money or finances, but it's more than that. Uh, it's talents or gifts that God has given you. Uh, it's service. Um, so it's not just money, mere, uh, other possessions maybe um, and abilities that God's blessed you with. And so uh, every gift that we do possess, whether it's material or a part of our characters and abilities, according to the Word of God, every gift we possess has been given to us by God and we're responsible to Him. He's the ultimate owner. We are mere stewards. And we have to give an accounting for everything to him someday. And that's stewardship. The kind of stewardship emphasized in this passage does relate to money and finances in the church of Corinth. So we're going to be looking at that today. Next week we'll look at uh, the latter part of the passage where Paul emphasizes biblical hospitality. Also very important. But it was very fitting that the theme providentially in our scriptures where we're at in Corinthians today is on money, stewardship, and also um, giving to the poor because we have been privileged as a church to invest and give to the poor uh, more on a long-term basis with Hope House in Mexico and the orphanage there, recent opportunities through India uh, and our connections there, uh, and then also just my recent experience of being able to go to Africa and seeing very special needs of the people there. So this, this passage is very relevant for us as a church and as people, but hopefully for you as an individual Christian as well. Like I said, we'll probably just get to, we have two points there. I'm just going to highlight the first one to help us. Just before I get started, by way of reminder, church today, we started at like 11.06, just so you know, a lot of good fellowship out there and whatever. So if I happen to go like six minutes extra long on the sermon today, that's why, because we start a little, but we'll, we'll try to stick to the schedule, but I don't want to miss out on this very rich, practical passage God has for us. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it again, just the first four verses, the four verses, because that's our point of emphasis. After talking about that long chapter for 58 verses, by the way, Paul didn't write in verses, it was just, you know, sentences as he's writing a letter in Greek. There was no chapter break here as we have it here, but there was an indicator as he's writing, he would sometimes use phrases that let us know, oh, we're transitioning onto a new topic. So we finished the resurrection, 58 verses, and now he uses this now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. That's a technical phrase he's used throughout the book of Corinthians to indicate, oh, now concerning the issue you brought up in the letter that you wrote me earlier, I'm going to respond to that. Now concerning idols, now concerning singles and marriage and uh, sexual intimacy. So these are themes that he's responding to because they had specific questions. And apparently the Corinthians had very specific questions about this offering that was being gathered up across many churches and also the topic of Apollos, who apparently had been in their midst 
was an amazing, spirit-empowered preacher that particularly blessed some in the congregation. So they were inquiring about Apollos. Where, where's he at? Is he coming again? So those are the two issues that particularly Paul is going to answer. So let's just look at the first four verses. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. That is, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as many as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, and Paul didn't know when that was, he had kind of big target dates or seasons, but there was no definitive date of when he would actually arrive. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve in your midst at the local church, there I shall send with I shall send them with letters to carry your gift of money to the saints of the church in Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, then they will go with me. So let's go ahead and look at this. Um, What is Paul talking about? Like I said, it's a new topic. It's a practical one. As a matter of fact, point number one has to do with practical giving. The local church is to support biblical ministry uh, by practical giving. Practical meaning uh, needs that are particularly identified, that are specific, that are relevant, uh, that mean something to people's lives. They're prioritized. They are thought through. They're prayed through. They make sense. They meet basic needs that people have. It's a good way of spending your money. It's being a wise steward. That's what I mean by practical giving. The church and Christians should be about the business of always and continually being practical givers, not wasting money, but being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And so that's what this topic is about. So apparently the Corinthians uh, had inquired. By the way, uh, just by way of reminder, this is probably Paul's, at least his second letter that he's written to the Corinthians, even though we call it 1 Corinthians. He makes it clear there was another previous letter he had written to them. He also makes it clear uh, that they had questions for him, and they sent him a letter. And they asked many questions about ministry. And so... A lot of what he's been doing in 1 Corinthians is answering those questions point by point. And he also added some other things that he thought they needed to hear. And so uh, that's what he's doing here. He's formally answering. They had a question about the collection regarding the saints. So that's verse 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, and it refers specifically to collecting money. This was a collection that was going on. Uh, and other, Paul was had been for who knows how long, many months now, maybe even more than that, strategically and purposely going around as a church planter. We know at least three missionary journeys that he had been on and went to many different countries, many different cities, started many different churches. And then he goes back and he visits those churches and he's seeing the big landscape and he's seeing the various needs wherever they are among Jews, but primarily among the Gentiles, depending upon what city and country he's in. And he sees a vast array of challenges that local churches and God's people are facing all over these different countries. And it just so happened that in Jerusalem, the main church, the mother church, the first church, that started on the day of Pentecost with the Apostle Peter and the 119 folks that were with him on the day of Pentecost, when that church started, that was the first and only church, everything started from there. And by the way, the church in Jerusalem started at Pentecost, which was a major Jewish church feast day for the people of Israel and according to the Old Testament, which means there were pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over 
the world who had come long distances to come to Jerusalem, the capital city, where the temple was, celebrate the Passover and the, the Passover week. And, the, and many stayed all the way up until Pentecost, almost 50 days later. Jews from all over the then known world. And then that amazing thing happened where the Spirit came down, started the church at Pentecost. There's 120 people who were faithful to Jesus. And then Peter preached the gospel. And it says that 3,000 people responded to the gospel of Peter in that busy, buzzing city of Jerusalem. 3,000 became believers that day. 3,000 unbelieving Jews got saved and became Christians. We know from history, the book of Acts and other books in the New Testament, that many of these pilgrims who came and converged on Jerusalem at that time, who got saved, did not go back home. Many of them stayed. The reason many of them did not go back home was because the only church in existence was the church in Jerusalem. And many didn't want to go back home, away from the church, away from God's people, for a lot of different reasons. Um, And so you had a very... A large concentration of people now staying long. They had an immigration problem. We can relate to that. Uh, We have people now who weren't originally planning to leave who are now trying to find a home and reside permanently or at least long-term in Jerusalem after they got saved. And then shortly thereafter, the book of Acts says another 5,000 men got saved shortly thereafter. Men, not counting women and children, it says, so you could have another 10 to 15,000. So now all of a sudden in Jerusalem, you've got a church that is just exploding with over 15,000, 20,000 members, and that is the only church. And so you've got all these Jews who are displaced, who aren't going back. And then quickly they run into resistance from unbelieving Jews, a severe resistance from the leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and they began shunning the believing Jewish Christians. They began desynagoguing them, kicking them literally out of the synagogue, disfellowshipping them. That also had an impact on if you were a Jew and you became a Christian at that time, you may have uh, lost your business or people began boycotting you. So that became a huge problem. We saw that from the apostles. Many of them got beat up, rejected, and even thrown in prison for being Christians. So there's a high level of persecution in Jerusalem towards believers and it affected them financially. So there's several layers of challenges that are going to affect them financially. And that's why the Church of Jerusalem, for the longest time, for over a decade, was one of the poorest regions, poorest Christian churches in existence in the New Testament. So God used the Apostle Paul for over a decade to help provide them financial relief by going to other churches that came up and sprung into existence over a course of two and three decades. And so that's what you're seeing reflected here in 1 Corinthians 16, what this collection was all about. It's collecting money from all these believers everywhere who could hear about it and who, who could give so that Paul could collect money, go back and uh, help these dear, suffering, poor saints in Jerusalem. In addition to the first two problems uh, and challenges of these believing Jews in Jerusalem uh, was the fact that, that then Stephen got persecuted. And when Stephen got persecuted in Acts chapter 7, uh, the apostle Paul, who was Saul at the time, hated Christians and he spearheaded uh, outright unmitigated persecution among Christians, even imprisoning them, killing them, and chasing them out of the area. So uh, they began to disperse. Uh, And then in addition to that, I want you to look at Acts chapter 11 uh, for the historical setting of 
why there was so much poverty for Christians in Jerusalem. By the way, prior to all this, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas was a poor area anyway for the Jews. Because that was the land that God had given to them in the Old Testament. And then the Romans came in, the Gentiles, and they just took it all over. They basically robbed the the Israelites. Took the land, took the resources, gave them limited rights, limited resources, but they became impoverished nationally before all this happened. And the Romans are still reigning supreme in that land. So that's just another challenge to survival. But in Acts chapter 11... All this is going on. These challenges of financial and economic hardship are just cascading and growing all the more. And then uh, Acts uh, chapter 11 says this. Uh, After the Apostle Paul finally got saved, um, he got saved in about A.D. 36, maybe six years after the ascension of Christ. And then he went into remote ministry. Not much is known about Paul at that time. Then God formally calls him out of the shadows to use him with Barnabas in public ministry. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. And so now Paul got saved. Jesus uh, ascended in about A.D. 30. Paul got saved six years later in A.D. 36. And now in uh, A.D. 44. So about eight years after Paul got saved, here's an incident. This described in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch was where Paul and Barnabas were helping teach and uh, pastor a church. Uh, one of these prophets, local prophets named Agabus, stood up at the church at Antioch and he began to indicate by the Spirit. He spoke a prophecy and he said that there would be certainly a great famine all over the world. This is A.D. 44. And guess what? That prophecy was fulfilled one year later. And we even know this from secular resources and secular history, that indeed there was a devastating famine that hit that part of the, uh, the world, especially in the area of Jerusalem and Judea in 45 and 46. It went on for over a year. The word of God was fulfilled through this prophet Agabus because at the end of verse 28 it says, and that's, this took place in the reign of Claudius. Amazing. Verse 29, and the in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. So you've got this church, these Christian believers are just devastated in Jerusalem. And they have been undergoing hardship, persecution, and now extreme poverty since Christ ascended. So you're talking about 15, 16 years now. Now this worldwide famine comes along. And so the saints are doing whatever they can. And the apostles are trying to spearhead this. We need to help these people in Jerusalem just to survive. We need to find every Christian we can anywhere that's willing to give and contribute and help them and relieve their poverty. And that's exactly what happened. And so they did that, verse 29, and in the proportion that any of the disciples or believers who had heard about it had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren or believers living in Judea. This is about 44, 45 A.D., Then when they got some money, verse 30, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul, who would become Paul. And so Paul becomes an official delegate of the church of Jerusalem to collect all this this money from the other churches to bring it from Antioch down to Jerusalem to relieve the saints there in Jerusalem where Peter and the apostles were pastoring. And they just were incredibly blessed. So this is one of the first and formal ways God was able to use the apostle Paul 
in proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but at the same time making a priority of loving the poor wherever he found them by trying to help meet their needs and coordinating efforts among the saints to do it, networking with the saints wherever he could find them to bless God's people. And this was a basic Christian discipline. Uh, This is the very heart of God. The Apostle Paul, as you read throughout the book of Acts and all of his epistles, you see that the Apostle Paul, first and foremost, uh, made a priority of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that can change the heart of a person. That is the only thing that can change the heart of a community. That is the only thing that can change the heart, really, of a nation. Is changing the heart of individuals through the gospel of Christ. And Jesus Christ made a priority of that when he was on earth. His main thing was to preach the gospel. But at the same time, Jesus also cared about people. He loved them, and he had a special love in his heart for those who were poor and did whatever he could to help relieve them, to help meet their needs, to feed them when he could. Jesus didn't come to eradicate poverty. But when Jesus came, he didn't try to eradicate poverty, but he did try to meet the needs of the poor and feed the poor and help the poor. And that's a basic Christian virtue. And it flows out of the heart of God all throughout the Old Testament. God says you need to help the poor. Uh, When God gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament in 1400 B.C., uh, he codified it in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 15 is very specific. And in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 15, God is telling Moses, you need to do this, this, and this. And if you do, and if you obey, and if your people obey, then you won't have poor people among you in your midst in the community of Israel because you're going to take care of each other as the people of God. But... If you don't obey, if you are disobedient, if you are selfish, you resist the law of God, Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, he says, then you will have poor people among you. If you disregard the poor, don't disregard the poor. Don't close your heart to your poor brothers. Now, in that context, uh, God is specifically talking about poor people in the midst of the believing community. By the way, In the Old Testament and with the Apostle Paul, when it talks about being sensitive to the poor, giving to the poor, especially with Paul, it is always in the midst, in the context of the believing community. That doesn't mean we disregard poor people who aren't in the Christian community, but a priority is we can't feed the whole world. We can't eradicate poverty. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. It's just a reality. As long as we have sinful people, there will be poverty. So Jesus didn't come to eradicate poverty. I was at the shepherd, a pastor's conference luncheon uh, with KFAX this last week. And John MacArthur, my former pastor, was the main speaker. It was an absolute blessing. So there's about 400, 500 people in our church staff went and we were blessed. And there was a, uh, a, a booth there, or a table, uh, that's actually kind of well-known in San Jose. And there's a person that leads that ministry. And it says right there, the goal of their ministry for the last 30 years is to eradicate poverty internationally. To literally use that word, eradicate poverty Internationally, I thought, wow, that's, that's just not going to happen. That is not going to happen. Um, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. We need to care about the poor, have a heart for the poor, follow the model of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, but we need to do it thinking biblically. And also, helping the poor and eradicating poverty and giving to the poor is not the priority of the church. It's a corollary of the church. The priority of the church is to preach the gospel. That was the mandate. That was the great commission that Jesus repeated in all four gospels. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. That people might be saved from their sin. And when we can, with our resources, we give to the poor materially. There are times where Christians can't. Peter and John, seeing the beggar, 
guy's begging for money, and they just silver and gold we don't have any. We're just as poor as you are, <laughs> but I got something better. I got something that'll save your soul for eternity: the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul had a heart for the poor, and he had that primarily as a result of being born again, because then he inherited the heart of God, Almighty God. And all throughout the Old Testament, Paul says, "Do not neglect the widow, the orphan, the poor." It needs to be a priority in terms of ministry and with the right purpose. And so that was the Apostle Paul. He took on that heart for the poor from the time that he got saved. And throughout the book of Acts, you see that, that he is spearheading collections and talking to the saints and saying, remember the poor. And he's actually collecting the money and strategizing and networking and making sure that it's done properly so that their needs are met of these churches who are poor. And that's a point of emphasis here in 1 Corinthians 16. That's what he's trying to do. So the Corinthians heard about... Uh, this poor church in Jerusalem, they've been poor for decades. They got ramished, uh, you know, hit with a famine that just ravished the area. And it's been going on for months and even years. And Paul has actually been talking about collecting money for them for months and months now. And he had already interacted with the Corinthians. The Corinthians has actually agreed to give graciously to the Apostle Paul so that the money could be given to the saints in Jerusalem. They already agreed to that, we know, from Second Corinthians and the book of Acts. And so they're inquiring it about again. And so that's the context here. So now concerning that collection of the saints, and it's the Christians in Jerusalem, verse 3. That's who the poor are. It's the poor people in the church in Jerusalem. They are the ones that that need our help right now. And we're going to be focused in our giving. And so uh, he's going to tell them about it. And he's going to give further information. So regarding, uh, thank you for asking about the poor Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, I appreciate that is what Paul's thinking here. By the way, uh, Paul was dealing with one of the problems Paul had to deal with with the Corinthians is that many of them were suspicious of Paul. Uh, They came to loathe him. They thought he was ugly, literally physically. They thought he was all talk. But when he came uh, in person, he was a wimp. He wasn't as erudite as Apollos. And uh, false teachers had begun to uh, grumble behind the scenes undermining Paul's reputation. And so the Corinthians, the church that he planted and pastored for a year and a half, these Corinthian believers, many of them now, were suspicious of their former pastor. Not only their former pastor, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We saw that earlier in the book. And you can see that bleed out in this text. As Paul's talking about, okay, now this money that you're collecting that I'm going to come and get from you, you can bet there were probably people in the Corinthian congregation like, I ain't given a penny to that guy. Who knows what he'll do with it? He'll misuse our money. This is clear. This comes out especially in the book of Second Corinthians. So Paul is very wise. He, he walks very carefully in his terminology, even in his strategy. He doesn't want to be a stumbling block. That's why he went on and on in earlier in Corinthians about, I, you know, I didn't take any money from you when I came preaching here, even though I deserve to. So he knows there are some in the Corinthian congregation who falsely, illegitimately don't trust him. So they're certainly not going to trust him with money. Now concerning the collection of the saints in Jerusalem, uh, I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Uh, The book of Galatians says nothing about this statement. But apparently Paul had talked to the churches in Galatia. Uh, We don't know which churches because there were at least eight different cities where Paul went, according to the book of Acts, preached planted churches, including, uh, and they were in North Galatia and South Galatia. So we don't know which churches, but it was probably many. And he'd visited there more than once. 
planted the church, pastored there, corresponded with them, encouraged them, went back, communicated with them, let them know, um, you know what, we have a severe need over here in Jerusalem, the mother church. We need to help. By the way, those churches in Galatia were primarily Gentile. Uh, The believers in Jerusalem were primarily Jewish. So you have Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. You have Gentile Christians everywhere else where Paul is going. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And one of the beautiful ministries and the things that this giving of the saints to Jerusalem is going to accomplish is build and preserve unity in the church of God. Meaning taking the Gentiles who were once loathed by the Jews, the Gentiles who are graciously, sacrificially giving to Jewish believers, showing a, a heart of love through giving. And that's gonna, God is going to use that to unite the church, the one new man, the body of Christ, that mystery that he talked about in Ephesians that wasn't talked about in the Old Testament where God would create a new body called the body of Christ where Jews and Gentiles are one before God as one new entity called the church where Gentiles have equal status, equal rights, equal inheritance as the Jews. And some of the Jews had a hard time with that. There's no way a, Gentile, a dirty Gentile can be of equal status as me. If they want to be a Christian and do it right, they've got to jump through the hoops, the Jewish hoops. They've got to get circumcised and this and this and this. And Peter even almost got swayed by that. Illegitimately, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face. No, no, that's a new entity, Peter. It's the body of Christ. Salvation is by faith in the gospel. And God is making one new man, Jew and Gentile, one new man. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. The color of your skin has nothing to do with it. Where your bone has nothing to do with it. It's one new man in Christ. And so that had to be overcome. And one of the things providentially and sovereignly that God did to take Gentiles and Jews and make them one new man was by using Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to go and collect money from all these Gentile churches and then come and lay it at the, at the feet of the saints in Jerusalem who were Jewish believers. And God accomplished his goal of preserving the unity in the body of Christ despite their ethnicity and racial background. It's awesome. That's why this ministry is so important and Paul knows it. So in verse 1, now concerning the collection of the saints to Jerusalem, as I directed you, uh, I've been talking to the churches in Galatia. They are excited. They are enthusiastic. They are committed to this collection. So you need to do the same. You've already promised that you were interested and willing to do that. And they did agree to do that. Here's a need. I'm going to collect it. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Give it to them. The Corinthians said, okay, we will participate. We, we're going to do that. There was a formal commitment on the part of Corinth. And this is in 55 AD when this letter was written. And did you know that the, the Corinthians were so suspicious of Paul and sped, spread such bad rumors about him that they stopped giving and they withdrew their commitment to give to Paul for almost an entire year. So he had to write Second Corinthians and kind of rebukes them very gently in chapter 8 of Second Corinthians. You know what? It was a year ago where you said you were going to do this. Now you need to be faithful to God, honor your word, and complete the task. That was in 56 AD. Well, the good news is we know that from Romans 15, verse 26, a little bit later towards 57 A.D., Paul is glad to write and commend the believers in Corinth saying, you know what, they gave, praise the Lord. They gave, the churches in Macedonia gave, the churches in Galatia, and I took all that money and we went down and we blessed the saints in Jerusalem. So uh, that encouragement was efficacious and the Corinthians finally came around. But they got stalled up here for over a year. They didn't want to give. They didn't want to open their... Their fist. 
for wrong reasons. And so uh, verse 2, on the first day of the week. So here's the strategy. Here's the collection we're going to take. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. So now 25 years since Jesus has ascended into heaven. For 25 years, the, the church was no longer worshiping God on the Sabbath on Saturday. As soon as Jesus ascended from the dead, or I mean resurrected from the dead on a Sunday, the church began making Sunday a priority day of corporate worship. And so that had been going on for 25 years. It was called the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday. And that's the context of verse 2. So on the first day of the week, uh, every week, every Sunday, make this a practice. When you worship with God's people, also be thinking about your stewardship on Sunday on the Lord's Day. On the first day of every week, let each one of you, it's every Christian, every believer, no one is exempt. This is not communism or socialism. Every individual is responsible for Almighty God for what you've been given as a faithful steward, as a Christian. That's why it's so specific. Let every single one of you who has been blessed with anything by God take account of what you've been blessed with Commit it to God and see how you might contribute. And so on the first day of every single week, every Sunday, let each one of you put aside and save up some money. Paul wasn't there yet. It might be months before Paul gets there. So he says, each week is a discipline. Every Sunday, uh, while you're doing worship and other priorities you have, think about the income you made that week. A lot of times they got paid day by day. And then on Sunday, set some aside based on how much you made. Set some aside. Save it up and just... Put it in the piggy bank for later and commit that money to this is going to go to the saints in Jerusalem. And, I, and when I come, we'll, we'll just collect it all together. That's what he's talking about. So this is actually a special offering, kind of like we took a special offering two weeks ago for India. This is very similar. So on the first day of the week, be strategic, save it, put aside. By the way, in the New American Standard, it says save up. That's the word thesaurus, a treasury of savings treasury of words this is a treasury of money save it up save it up save it up set some aside uh and save as much as aside as you have been prospered in light of what god has given to you so that no collections will be made when i come when i get there we're not going to take a special collection we'll just gather what you've already saved so this is a very wise uh very specific plan of strategic giving for a very specific need so they just be saving, 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 so that when Paul comes, they just put it all together. Verse 3, and when I arrive, who knows when that will be. It was in, within the next year, by the way. Paul doesn't say, I'm going to come, and then I want you to give me all the money because I'm the anointed of God. That goes on today. There are people who are in ministry for filthy lucre, the love of money. That's why one of the qualifications in 1 Corinthians 3 of an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer is that he cannot be a lover of money. He cannot be a lover, and it also goes on to say he cannot be covetous because such a man can't be trusted with God's money or the people's money. Paul's the one that wrote those qualifications under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul was a man of integrity. He could be trusted with God's people's money. If you have people who are who can't be trusted with money, then they shouldn't be pastors and they shouldn't be stewards and they shouldn't be handling God's money. So when I arrive, whomever you may approve, and this is interesting. So when I get there, I'm just not going to collect it myself uh, and take it myself. Paul says, when I get there, whomever you may approve, choose people from among your own congregation. Man, that was very wise. Choose those people. Select your own leadership and representation and team of missionaries who will go take this money that you gave them and take it down to Jerusalem. He's just overseeing the project here. He doesn't have to be hands-on. Give me the money. Give me the checkbook. Like Judas... 
who was the treasurer of that group who was ripping off the apostles for three years? Paul says, no, you guys handle the money. So he's delegating here. Whomever you may approve, he's trusting them. He's showing a sign of trust. They didn't trust him, but he's trusting them. And then I'll, I'll send letters of commendation along to validate uh, the offering that's being given to the saints of Jerusalem and put my imprimatur, my signature on there so that Peter knows and James and John that it's from me. It's been sanctioned by an apostolic authority, the Apostle Paul, so they can use it accordingly. So I'll be willing to do that for you. I'll be willing to certify it for you uh, with your gift down to Jerusalem. Then he says in verse 4, and if it is fitting for me to go also, I'd love, you know, I want to come visit you. I want to spend time with you. I don't want to be a short time. I need to spend some quality time with you as a church again. And I want to adjust my schedule accordingly. Uh, And if that happens, maybe when I come, I'll have enough time where I can actually go with you guys, with your team, to Jerusalem as well. Then I don't need to write a letter. I'll be there with you. And we'll get to see Peter and the local church and the saints and be able to relieve it. There is nothing that will bless your heart or your soul more than being able to collect funds, collect goods, collect riches, and then go personally, hands-on, to give it to those in need, like uh, Pastor Bob has been able to do with others, to go to Mexico and actually give the box of Christmas presents to the orphan. I mean, it's cool what Franklin Graham does where you can give money or send a box, but there is nothing like being on the end where you can actually take the box and hand it to the child and just see the smile on his face. What a blessing. What a blessing. And that's what Paul wanted to do. That's the best of the best. I want to go myself. I want to bless these people in person. I want to see their smile and how they are blessed by God and they're thanking God and God's people. So Paul, that's the, his heart's desire. Uh, I don't know if, I can't remember, if the, I think the email went out where an update on the, the ministry to India. So two weeks ago we took a special offering, or a, a week ago, two weeks ago, took a special offering right here at this church for the ministry in India. Uh, particularly for the widow's home, that we, the land we wanted to buy, the home we wanted to build, the well we wanted to put there, for the orphans. And so then we sent out an email. So we sent some of that money over there to John Paul, saying here's money for the orphans' land and build a house. And just days later, John Paul sends back pictures this week. It was Thursday. I was in my parked car with the engine off. And I got the email from Pastor Bob, from John Paul. And he gave an update, thanking the saints at GBF, a heart full of thanksgiving and praise. He was beside himself. Couldn't even articulate how thankful him and the people are, the saints there in India, of what we have done. And And then he said, and he delineated everything they've done with the money. In less than a week, they, they purchased the land for the widows. And he's standing there with the deed to the land in his hands. Picture. Uh, he's standing next to a well they have already built on the land of the money we gave for the widows. They've already begun construction or leveling the land where they're going to build the widow's home. This is like in less than two weeks. We, we can't do this in America, that kind of construction. Oh, my goodness. It was unbelievable. Um, and several other pictures. Maybe you saw that. Picture of John Paul 
standing with a brand new two to three hundred dollar wheelchair with his uh, invalid daughter sitting in that chair. And then another picture, John Paul's wife behind the wheelchair. From the money that you gave. That's what Paul wants to experience. It's awesome. True confession. Um, <laughs> so I'm sitting there in my car reading this email. And as soon as I saw the pictures, I can't even say it. <laughs> I started weeping. <laughs> Like a baby. You don't have to be sad for me. It was I was really happy. <laughs> and I just I couldn't believe it. I was so uh, overcome and overwhelmed. So thank you, dear saints. And we want to keep showing those pictures to you and get an update and communicate with John Paul and. Continue to bless and God, Lord willing, some of us can go back to India and be there and minister further and be hands on and be in that widow's house and uh, see the widows and uh, just be praying about that. Just amazing. Anyway, so I, yeah, so there I am crying and heaving and sobbing uncontrollably in the car and people are walking by other pastors. What's, what's that guy doing in that car? <laughs> uh, no, they were tears of joy. Um, and that, you know what, that's what God can do through his people. That is the heart of God. And so this is what Paul wants to accomplish with the Corinthians. So um, he says in verse 4, so if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So we're going to actually stop there. And I, I want to highlight just a couple of things in conclusion. So the emphasis here is motivating the saints, encouraging the saints, and informing them so that they can be gracious and sacrificial in their giving and then meet the needs of the poor, which is the heart of God. But also out of this is a corollary. There are very specific principles of giving here from the Bible, and we need to follow Paul's model. And I thank God that uh, I had others who kind of emphasized this to me over the years, and we've, we've tried to run GBF this way at the leadership of how we're going to handle money and spend money and do missions and partner with people. And we're not going to be willy-nilly with our funds. We want to do it in a biblical manner. So here's just a few biblical principles of handling money and using money as God's people and as a local church and as individual Christians. Glean from this passage. I'm going to go kind of quickly, but uh, you'll get the idea. Okay? Uh, these are all from 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Uh, one of the principles is that Paul is not afraid to talk about money honestly with his people, and we need to do that now concerning the collection. And so we need to talk openly, especially among our members, about giving. Some churches are unwilling to do that. Uh, another principle is, uh, this, the text said, now regarding the, the collection for the saints, the saints in Jerusalem. In other words, uh, when it comes to giving, we need to be giving to a specific purpose, a specific cause. Our giving should have a definite purpose. Not just, oh, give me the money and who knows where the money went. There's no accountability. Paul articulated a very specific purpose of who this was going to be given to. This is for the saints, not the world, not the whole city of Jerusalem. 
the, the poor saints in Jerusalem. That's where it is going. And you know what I've seen over the years is as specific as you can be with a specific need where there's a financial price tag to it that's legitimate, God's people respond in an overwhelming manner. That's why I think when we said very specifically, here are the needs in India, here's the band it's going to, here's how it can be done, here are the widows, we can buy this land, we can build a house right there, and here's what it will do. And then the church just responded overwhelmingly and gave more than we needed for that house. That's what Paul's doing here. So we need to be specific and definite in what we're asking people to give to. It's not just give me money. Uh, Another thing he says, as I directed. In other words, Paul is in charge. He's owning up. When it comes to church and collecting money and dispensing money, somebody needs to be in charge. Somebody needs to be accountable and responsible. The buck needs to stop somewhere. So if something goes wrong, something goes awry, there's a question. It's not, well, that wasn't my fault. It was so-and-so. Or I think it was the elders or the other pastors. Or no, it was Pastor Bob. No, it was Pastor Cliff. No, it was, I think it was Pastor Sam or whatever. No, it needs to stop somewhere. And Paul is making clear, I am responsible. I am accountable. We need to do that when it comes to people's money. And Paul wasn't afraid to do that. Here at our church, it's the elders have claimed responsibility for the funds that come in. And we stand before God as our judge for that. That is frightening. Uh, Another principle. Uh, Paul gave a very definitive plan in advance. This isn't willy-nilly, last-minute, you know, working on people's emotions, getting them all riled up, and then passing the basket based on emotion. No, this is a planned-out thing well in advance, exactly what was going on. Uh, planning ahead financially, how you're going to collect money and spend money, we call that a budget. That is exactly what Paul is doing here. Keep it, do it on this day, save it up. When I come, this is what we're going to do with it. This is how much, this is how we're going to, okay. Having a budget. Uh, And then he says on the first day of the week, every single week, regularity. Our giving as Christians needs to be regular. Regular, regular, regular. How regular? He doesn't tell us. There's freedom before God. How regular? As regular as your income is how regular your giving should be, or at least your saving. Forgiving. Also, it's on the first day of the week. Paul means he understands giving and money is a part of an act of worship. This isn't just a secular, dichotomized thing we jump through that has nothing to do with being a Christian or Christian discipline. Giving, giving it to God's people, giving it to the church is an act of worship before Almighty God, something that he is pleased with. As a matter of fact, Second Corinthians, Paul uh, writes that God is pleased at the generosity of the saints who give. He is pleased. That's a way to worship God. Also, he says, uh, as the churches in Galatia and the churches in Macedonia, which would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, all these other churches, this, is, this isn't just you. This is basic to Christian living, a basic universal Christian discipline before God is to be giving. A Christian is a giver, giver of their stewardship, whether it's money, material, giftedness. And it's for all the churches. Every Christian needs to operate that way. So I wrote a book on 11 Christian disciplines, and one of them is giving. This is basic to being a Christian. Jesus himself said in the book of Acts, quoted by Paul, it is more blessed to give than to receive. One of the greatest expressions of love is giving. God so loved that he gave. So it's a basic Christian virtue, giving. Each one of you, giving is to be personal, individual, uh, is the point there. Putting aside and saving up. Giving needs to be ongoing and continual. That's the verb. Uh, it needs to be prioritized. That's how we give as Christians. We give in terms of priority, prayerful priority, disciplined giving, planned giving. As he may prosper, Christians give as they've been blessed by God. Also, there's a freedom in giving because Paul never says how much you need to give. You need to give 10%. He never says that. You give how much you have been prospered. 
It's called a free will giving. We don't believe in a tithe. Give your 10% legalistically without thinking about it, praying about it, or even if you don't have it. It's a free will offering before God. Paul is clear on that here. He doesn't give a limit. It's not the amount you give. It's the attitude by which you give more than anything. Basic biblical principle. And then uh, just a couple to close here. Um, I already said how he says, whomever you may approve. There's got to be trust. Whomever you, you know what, Corinthians, I'll trust you. And then you trust me as I oversee this. And that's when Christians give. They give to people they trust, or you should. give to people. Don't give to people you don't know, and you don't know where the money's going, and there's no accountability. Give to people you know and you trust that they have the right priorities in terms of ministry. And that's how we try to do giving with missions here at GBF. Uh, and then Paul just is a great example. He says, I will send with letters, commendation, choose uh, people among yourselves, uh, or I could go. He's given them options. Paul is being very scrupulous and careful with the people's money. Highest of integrity, and that's what we need to do. We're handling God's money and other people's money. And then just finally he says, and then, if it's possible, then they will go with me. Uh, in other words, accountability. Paul's talking in plural terms the entire thing throughout here. Paul believed in, get this, team ministry. Team ministry. A plurality of ministers. Because inherent in that is accountability. That's why there's a plurality of elders at the church. It has to be a plurality of elders, a plurality of deacons. Read through the book of Acts, and Paul, wherever he goes, for the most part, he's with a team of people. And here there's accountability through a plurality of people. So there shouldn't be a one-man show in the church in any area of ministry, especially with money. Wherever you see a Lone Ranger Christian, that's cause for concern. That is a red flag. That is reason to be suspicious. There needs to be open accountability, team of people. We all have weak spots. We need help. We all walk with feet of clay. We're all tempted. God, we need, we need each other's help. And accountability is one of God's solutions to balance that in a way that pleases Him. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord, the one who is the giver of all good gifts, and thank Him for this day. And uh, if you're able to stay for the fellowship meal, that would be wonderful. Uh, Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for, again, the treasure of Your Word. Thank You for the model of the Apostle Paul. Lord, as he said, he was a model of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tried to follow you, Lord. And we thank you for these many basic, practical, and yet biblical principles of handling money and giving. God, continue to provide. We plead with you for Grace Bible Fellowship and our needs in ministry. We are totally dependent upon you, not our own resources. And at the same time, God, remind us to be acting with the highest level of integrity, accountability, wisdom, being prayerful, prioritized, so that in all of our handling of money, we are going to please You, advance Your kingdom, so that You get the glory. God, I thank You for John Paul and his ministry in India. God, continue to bless them. Thank You for the generosity of our saints here at GBF who contributed to that and other churches who are giving as well. I commit uh, Vincent, my brother Vincent, to you and his ministry. And thank you for what you've done up to this point. Continue to bless his ministry. Go before him. Help him keep the right priorities of the gospel of Christ and to be a faithful steward. And 
that many in Ghana will continue to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We love you. We commit this day to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.